Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And welcome to Policy Forum Pod. I'm Martin Pierce. Uh, Policy Forum Pod is brought to you from Crawford School of Public Policy. We are the region's leading public policy school. Come and study with us. You can find out more about Crawford at crawford.anu.edu.au. And that r- rambunctious and raucous noise at the beginning was uh, because we've got a very special podcast with a very special lineup today, which I'm going to be talking about in a second. It's a very special pod because Policy Forum Pod has turned 50, not in years, but in episodes. And to mark our podcast, half century, we are doing something a little bit special. So today, we're going to be taking a look back at the past and also peering into the future of Policy Forum Pod. We're going to be making some tweaks to the format of the pod, which you're going to hear a little about in the coming weeks. And one of these changes is that we are expanding the universe of Policy Forum podcast hosts. We're moving beyond the orbit of usual voices on the pod, which means that you'll hear from a wider galaxy of experts leading discussions on the key policy questions of the day. And two of those voices are here with us today, Bob and Sue. Hello, Bob. Good afternoon, Martin. Great to be with you. Hello, Sue. Hi, Martin. So, Bob Cotton is a visiting fellow at Crawford School of Public Policy. He has had an extensive career as an Australian diplomat in the Asia-Pacific region. Bob has undertaken consultancy work for ANAO, DFAT, AusAid, and as an associate of Tempo Strategies for a range of Commonwealth departments. Sue Regan is a PhD scholar and a tutor at Crawford School of Public Policy. She's also program director at the Institute of Public Administration Australia. It's fantastic to have Sue and Bob on board. Uh, to bring their considerable policy expertise to the podcast. But don't worry, you'll still get to hear my dulcet tones every once in a while, as well as the melodious voices of our other podcast regulars who are also with us. Nikki Lovegrove. Hello, Nikki. Good to be here. And Sharon Bessel. Hello, Sharon. Hi, Martin. Very excited to be here on the 50th episode of the pod. It is really exciting, isn't it? So Policy Forum has has come quite a long way from its rather humble beginnings. Uh, I had to listen back to some of those early episodes. The audio quality was, you know, it was a bit ropey. I was kind of learning in places. Uh, Over time, we have done uh, more than 30 hours of podcast listening. You could sit there for more than an entire day and listen through to your dulcet tone, Sharon. Very exciting opportunity for people, I must say. (laughs) I'm sure there are lots of people out there who are doing it. Um, And uh, over the last half century of episodes, we've covered a huge range of policy topics, ranging from food security to football, football, obviously one of my favourites, Brexit to basic income and robots to reproductive health. And our guests too have varied enormously, ranging from undergraduate students all the way up to under secretaries general. I went through and tried to tally up how many people we'd had on the podcast who had uh, awards to their names, you know, OAMs or SURs or OBEs. And quite frankly, I lost count. I don't have that many fingers. So it's been an incredible range of people that we've had through on the podcast. You'd also be pleased to hear that of the 100 or so guests that we've had, around sort of 40% have been women. That's great, Martin. I mean, one of the things that we're, we're really committed to at the Crawford School is ensuring that there's gender balance in the way we present to the world, but that we bring different perspectives to consideration of those issues. So it's fantastic that the pod's reflecting that. 
Yeah, it is great indeed. So here's how today's pod is going to work, because it is a bit of a special one. The five of us this week have nominated two podcasts from our back catalogue that we really liked for one reason or another. Uh, And we're going to be pulling out our favourite moments from the last 30 hours of discussion. What we're going to do is go around to each of the five people present today and hear from each of them what their two favourite podcasts were. Uh, And we'll also play a clip from each of the 10 pods to highlight some of our favourite policy insights over the last two years of producing the pod. We'll then have a chat about those times when things went, well, let's say not so well on the podcast. So make sure you stick around to the very end because we've got some glorious audio to play, uh, which will probably be a surprise to a few of the people in the room today. As always, we would love to hear your thoughts on our podcast Half Century, whether it's your favourite episodes or the parts you think should never have made the light of day. We want to hear from you. You can get in contact with us via email, where we are podcast at policyforum.net. You can find us on Twitter, where we are apps policy forum, or you can find us on Facebook, where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society. And we absolutely love getting your comments, thoughts and questions. So please do keep them coming in. Okay, so I want to start off our 10 favourite episodes by one of my favourite episodes. It was the episode called Our University's Failing Society, and it featured two of my favourite people, actually, Professor Asit Biswas from the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy, and James Giger, who at the time was uh, the editor of another academic blog based here at the Australian National University called New Mandala. Uh, And the two of them talked about the role of academic knowledge in a post-truth world and whether universities are now more concerned with chasing global rankings than making a meaningful contribution to society. Let's have a listen to what they had to say. I have written now 84 books. Not a single prime minister or a minister or a senior bureaucrat, I can tell you, has read those books or commented on the books. One article, one op-ed in the right journal, right media, you see immediate impact. And that is how you can get your message across. And that is what I'm trying to do. The, The reason when you told me to do all this, my objective is very clear these days. If I have an opportunity by which I can reach larger number of people, I'll go out of my way to grab that opportunity. So that was Asit Biswas there talking about, you know, the kind of impact that he can create from different means of communication. Um, and very interesting to hear him talk about how, you know, he's written 84 books and government ministers simply don't read that, those books. We're in a university and universities... I think it's probably fair to say obsess at the moment over the idea of impact and how to create impact and uh, and what impact actually actually looks like. So it's fantastic to get assets insights on that. James also uh, talked about the role that academic blogs can play in getting academic insights into public discussions and into policy and into policy formulation. And of course, in doing so, you know, he highlighted one of the reasons why we created a policy forum in the first place as a platform for uh, academic expertise and research to inform public public discussions. I thought it was a really strong podcast. It resonated with me on a on a on a personal level, and I thought they were two fantastic speakers. So I thought that was a, a great conversation, Martin, and it raised so many really important issues about what it is that we do here at universities. And I, I think it reminds us of the importance of communicating more broadly than we traditionally have done within academia. You know, very few people read those refereed articles. As Asit said, very few people read those incredible 84 books that he's written. And so thinking about how we package and how we reach people and how we inform debate is really fundamentally important. But the other point that I would make is for Asit to be able to have made the contribution that he has made and continues to make, you need that deep knowledge that sits behind it. And so even if the Prime Minister hasn't read those 84 books, those 84 books are fundamentally important in terms of informing his position, giving us an evidence base on which we base 
those kind of short, sharp sound bites or the more engaging blog. So I think both things are important, but what we must not lose sight of is the importance of the research that provides the foundation. Sue, what did you make of it? Yeah, I thought it was really um, interesting as well in terms of how it uh, illustrated the real tensions that exist still within academia in terms of, you know, a lot of the incentives are still around writing the books and writing the journal articles. Um, you know, and and that is uh, such a kind of dominant driver within academia. And yet, if we're going to be heard, we have to try these other methods. You know, as Sharon says, it's about getting out there. And, you know, and similar to Sharon, I think it's, we have such deep expertise within universities. And we, we focus a lot on those research outputs where really we need to be looking at how we get that expertise out into the policy domain. So yeah, I thought it was a, a really uh, a really good example uh, of, of how we share that knowledge and expertise that we have at universities. I really like the podcast because it also made the important point that academics are usually publicly funded. And the knowledge that they produce is supposed to be for the benefit of all of society. And I think that they have an obligation to try and share it with society and make sure it's not just locked away in academic journals, in obscure corners of the internet that you need you need to pay to be able to access. So I think that it, they, they really spoke on the podcast about how we need to transform the way that academic knowledge is shared around the world and distributed. And I think that the role of podcasts and the role of op-eds placed in, in, in public media is a, is a really important way of distributing that knowledge. Uh, I, it, it's a great pod and we will include links to both this pod and all the pods we're going to be talking about in the show notes for this week's episode. But I want to move on now to a, a podcast that Sharon nominated as one of her favourites. And this would also be one of mine. It was a podcast with... Okay, I'm going to try and say this very carefully. Babatundi or Shati Men? That was, that was perfect, Martin. It was much well, better. Well, at least to an Australian ear. <laughs> it was much better than my, my first attempt, as you will hear later. Uh, and the podcast was called All Things Being Equal. Babatundi was the executive director of the United Nations Population Fund, UNFPA, and Undersecretary General of the UN. Sadly, Babatundi died a few months after recording. And in fact, there was a lovely piece, Sharon, that you wrote. Uh, as an obituary for Babatunde, which we published on Policy Forum. And again, we will include a link to that in this podcast. So let's have a listen to what Babatunde had to say. A woman or a girl who is not able to determine her body and her body functions and what she can do and not do can, is not empowered. And to that extent, the lady or the the woman or the girl must know about our physiology, must know about the transition from childhood to adulthood, must know about our sexuality, must be able to determine when and how she wants to have children, if she wants to marry, how many children she wants to have, and the spacing that she, she needs to have between one child and the other. If you have no control over that, then you are not empowered. Now, of course, it is that empowerment that actually leads now to all the other things, economic empowerment, you know, political empowerment, and social empowerment and cultural empowerment. And I, I, I want to say that the foundation is, you know, your ability to control your sexual and reproductive health and exercise your rights as a human being. Powerful stuff. Sharon, tell us a bit about why you chose this podcast. So, Martin, this, this conversation that we had with Baba Tunde was, to me, so powerful on so many different levels. So we spoke with Baba Tunde at around the time that the US administration had decided to withdraw funding from UNFPA. Um, and that speaks, I guess, to what is often seen as the controversy around issues relating to sexual and reproductive health and to women's choice. And what Babatunde spoke of so incredibly powerfully was that this, is, this should not be a controversial issue. This is about fundamental rights. This is about being able to make decisions that impact on every aspect of a woman's life. And so I think that message that was captured in the clip is just so incredibly powerful, but also so important because outrageously this remains controversial 
in the 21st century, whether or not women should have the right to choose and whether or not we should publicly fund and support that right. So I think that was really important. The other issue that Babatunde talked about that I, I was also struck by was the way in which we need to think of the sustainable development goals, not simply as very high level political goals, but to think about how we put them into local context and the way we create local ownership around sustainable development. So that was a, a second message that was important. And of course, as you said, Martin, Babatunde passed away only a few months after we spoke to him. So at a personal level, it was an incredible opportunity um, to speak to someone who was such a powerful force for women's empowerment and for development and who is now lost to the world. But I hope his legacy is not lost. Sue, what did you make of that? Yeah, I mean, similarly, I thought it was a, such a powerful interview and the fact that he's passed kind of made it even more powerful and fantastic that, you know, he's clearly left a legacy. We're talking about it now. Um, I mean, I, I was struck um, in particular about how uh, he talked about sexuality and control being the foundation of other forms of empowerment. I think often we we come at um, empowerment from other dimensions. So we start with economic empowerment um, or we start with, you know, social empowerment. But actually, I was just, you know, really, I, I find that core message around if you don't have control over your sexuality, it's incredibly difficult to have control in other areas of your life. Um, yeah, I think that's a, that message is a real legacy for him. It was indeed a powerful podcast. I definitely recommend people give it a listen. Now I want to go on and talk about a issue which we've covered a few times on uh, the podcast. But this was really where it started. And the podcast was called A Basic Income or the End of Welfare. And on that, uh, we spoke to uh, four experts in this space, uh, Guy Standing, Charles Murray, Peter Whiteford and Ollie Kanga, so who in fact we spoke to uh, again uh, a little bit later in the series. Now, Bob, this was your nomination, so we'll hear your thoughts on it in a second. But first of all, let's have a listen to a clip of what Guy Standing had to say. Income insecurity is a pandemic everywhere. It's a pandemic. And in those circumstances, you cannot expect people to be rational politically and this is one of the problems and i believe that this is giving a new context to basic income i really do because it can become a pillar not a panacea a pillar of a new income distribution system for the 21st century real wages in australia in britain in europe in the united states Real wages will not rise much in the foreseeable future. In a globalized context of China and India and Indonesia and so on, these big countries whose workers uh, are resigned to accept a wage of one thirtieth of what a typical Australian could receive. So in those circumstances, you either put up with growing inequality and growing insecurity with the political consequences that will follow or you do something fairly dramatic and change the income distribution system. And I think that the context uh, has changed such, to such an extent that we've almost reached the point where unless we move to a basic income, we are going to see neo-fascist populist growing everywhere. That's as fundamental a challenge as we could imagine. So tell us about this, Bob. Why did you choose this one? Well, I found it a powerful one, Martin, and I remind myself that this happened two years ago and just interesting to reflect on what was said then and what's happened since. And I find I really can't fault Guy's analysis of it. I think the analysis of what has gone on, and he adds to that, of course, the globalisation that's gone on in the world the last 20 or 30 years, the rapid pace of technology throughout the world, uh, the neoliberalist sort of ideology which has spread well beyond the United States. And really this whole question of insecurity of people, the lack of a basic income, their uncertainties, their resentments and all of that is very alive and well in the world today. So I found that particularly fascinating. 
And I thought of the four of uh, he was also more attuned to the Australian experience than uh, other speakers, not Peter Whiteford, of course, who I thought was terribly rational, terribly sensible, reminded us all that this concept of a universal basic income has a history in Australia. The Henderson report back in the 1970s kind of first broached it, that we have it within our power. If we were to change our tax and transfer policies, we could do something like that and it would do well. Uh, the other speaker that struck me was the United States representative, Charles Murray, who was kind of equally radical on the other side. Radical in a good way, I think, alarmist in a very kind of American way. And I don't mean to be offensive about that. But really, uh, what Charles wants to do is dismantle the whole thing and start again, giving people, say, $10,000 a year plus health insurance, which is terribly important in the United States, States. But he doesn't expect anything to happen until there's a basic crisis in the whole system before there's the political will and enterprise to actually move to change it. And that's kind of sad. Terribly American in its own way because it kind of brings up that memory they have of rugged individualism, individuals doing their best for themselves with their families and communities, get government out of the way. And it's kind of ironic that he wants to do all of this, but who's going to do it? It'll be the government that does it. Uh, and so let's just watch that space and see what happens. I commend him, though, because when he said that piece, uh, Donald Trump was yet to be elected. And I think quite rightly, Charles says he didn't expect any reform coming out of a Trump presidency in this space. And last but by no means least was the Finnish experience, which I won't go into here because sadly that was called off by an incoming government. It'd be interesting to see what would have happened in that space. Sharon, what did you make of that podcast? Well, I thought that was a terrific podcast for a couple of reasons. One um, is that Guy Standing is a, a bit of an old intellectual hero of mine. So hearing him speak is, is terrific. And I've heard him speak in person and he is such a powerful speaker. Um, but the substantive points that he made about the challenges that we're facing and his concept of precarity um, and the, the end of the age of security and what that means for people's lives, for what that means for workers, I think is, is really important. But the other thing that I really liked about this podcast was the way in which we explored the complexities of the issue and we moved away from an assumption that any one policy can be a silver bullet because the speakers were both talking about what basic income could bring and Guy Standing is a great advocate, but there was also some problematisation of mm. basic income. Mm. And I guess I've been around... The, the sort of the public policy space and the development space for long enough to have heard the discussion about the silver bullets that have come before. So we had the microfinance um, as what would save the world. We had, and I think we still have to some extent, conditional cash transfers as what will save the world. And now basic income's emerging in that way. And I think there is no silver bullet, but this podcast to me was exactly what we were saying academics should do is contribute to informed debate about what solutions might be. So for all of those reasons, I really love this pod. Yeah, I totally agree with that. It was such a range of views and some very strong views, as, as you pointed out, Bob, some quite controversial views in places. Sue, what did you make of it? Yeah, I mean, fascinating, particularly with the range of views. Um, and I think it illustrated something that I often feel with debates on universal basic income is that I have a sort of split personality that, you know, at a, at a rational level, I can really see the yeah. merits in it as a policy approach, particularly given how the context, as Guy Standing talked about, has has changed. It makes a, a universal basic income a lot more appealing and, you know, and indeed more necessary. But at the same time, I kind of just see the pragmatic and the, the political challenges that would um, that are faced when you try and introduce a universal basic income um, and that very much was the case in relation to the, the Finnish pilot as well so yeah fascinating for really I think drawing out those uh, the tensions that you can have within one policy. So let's stay with you Sue for the next podcast because this is your nomination and it was a podcast where we took a very Australian look at an issue which plays out in a lot of countries around the uh, around the world uh, and that was the issue of housing affordability. The podcast was a high price tag for the Australian dream and we spoke to Ben Phillips from ANU and Cuckoo Joseph. Let's have a listen to what they had to say. The real issue with housing affordability, as I see it, is around getting that deposit together to purchase that first home. So if you're a renter and you're wanting to get into the housing market, 
um, and if you don't have parents who've got lots of money who can who can help you out in that regard, um, pulling together that deposit is the real challenge, and that really is based on say a, a, a 10, 15, 20 percent share or deposit of that purchase price. So that's where it becomes very difficult. So on a $540,000 home, you might be looking at needing to pull together a deposit of over $100,000. And then on top of that, you've got stamp duty, which varies from uh, state to state, but it might be also ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000. You might be a bit less if you're a first home buyer, depending on what's going on at the time in the policy world. But you can easily be looking at having to stump up well over $100,000 of, uh, of cold hard cash which is very difficult for, for most young families to stump up. It's a lot of money, isn't it? So why did this podcast resonate with you? It is. Um, I think it, for two big reasons, really. The first is uh, around housing policy and how it is a, you know, it's something of universal concern. We all, we all have to have somewhere to live. You know, we all need a home. Um, and yet it's something that I think can often uh, get neglected in policy and political debate. So, you know, I think something about its universal appeal and that came out well, I think, in this podcast. Um, but really, the the what I was left with uh, when I uh, listened to this podcast again, as I did, was really what housing affordability tells us about some of the big picture issues. So it really brought home to me the scale of inequality of wealth. Um, you know that hundred thousand figure that you need for a, de- a deposit. Um, you know who in society can afford that, um, you know, and really the the intergenerational transmission of that wealth as well, because, you know, the, the way that you get on the housing ladder, uh, the way that you afford that 100,000, as Ben was talking about, is through, you know, support from parents. Uh, it requires your parents to have wealth. Um, so, yeah, I thought it was a fascinating podcast. And I think in particular, you know, in illuminating some of these big picture issues around inequality. You mentioned intergenerational issues there. And I'm going to guess that, Sharon, you might have something to say about that as well. Yeah, I think like Sue, this was a a podcast that to me spoke of those big issues. And I'm reminded of a comment that one of our listeners made, not in relation to this pod, but uh, in relation to the pod that Maya did with the the discussion with three very impressive young women about creating spaces. That was a great pod as well. It was a terrific pod, um, creating spaces for young people, particularly young women. And one of the comments after that from one of our listeners was in relation to intergenerational theft, Mm. so really strong language. But I think there, there are some really fundamental issues here about what we're setting up for the next generation. So those big picture issues are are really fundamentally important and came out of that pod. But I think when we talk about housing, it also raises micro issues. I mean, where we live, what we live in, in terms of the house is so fundamental to our identity, to our well-being, to how we see ourselves, to our connectedness to the community. So this is such an important issue for those big picture reasons, but also just in terms of how people live on a day-to-day basis and how they see themselves. And the flip side of that is if housing affordability leads to increased homelessness, what does that do to people's well-being, to their identity, to their sense of self? It's devastating. So this is a really fundamentally important issue. And like Sue, I think it's one that doesn't really get enough time. Yeah, so plenty of great insights there. So I want to keep rolling along here and take us away from a very Australian issue or a very Australian focus on a global issue and take us halfway around the world uh, to a place that's uh, particularly familiar to Sue and I as we, uh, uh, as we are from Britain originally. And it was a podcast that, uh, that we did on Brexit. And it happened before the Brexit vote. Uh, It was called Should I Stay or Should I Go? Uh, And it features three speakers, Jürgen Brumer, Clem McIntyre and Lawrence Pratchett. And they were all um, talking about giving us essentially an Asia-Pacific take on the issues, looking at how it came about, what the consequences might be, whichever way the vote was going to go, because obviously we didn't know at that stage, and what it might mean for the Asia-Pacific region. So we've got a clip from Jürgen Bromer. Let's have a listen to that. In the United States, we have this guy, Donald Trump, sitting, who is uh, talking all kinds of nonsense. None of it is really inspiring hope you know, building walls. Brexit is a more intellectual intellectual way of saying, let's build walls. Marine Le Pen is a more kind of like diffuse way of let's build walls. 
I just don't think that walls are the answer to the questions of the next decades. Collaboration is the answer. There was plenty of nodding heads whilst we were <laughs> playing that clip, but this was my this was my nomination. I mean, for, for me, this podcast was well. Look, I, I observe a couple of things. First of all, the absolute passion of all of the interviewees, and I think this has been a kind of theme of uh, the people that we've interviewed on the podcast. It's been a real privilege for me personally to pick people's brains about their area of expertise. And it makes you realize that um, their expertise isn't purely academic in nature. I don't, you know, I, and I use air quotes when I talk about that. They're researching these areas because they think they are critically important to public policy. And they genuinely believe um, in the research and the evidence that they find, and they want to get that research and evidence out there. And you can hear uh, in the way that Jürgen talks about those things, just how passionate he is. And I, I, I thought it was made for a fantastic pod from that point of view. The other observation I'd make is that obviously we recorded this before the vote. And there was some inclination, I think, before that, that the vote might go the way that that it did. But most of the polls were saying that the that Remain would probably just 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 about edge it. And I think that what we've seen in the two years since the vote is that perhaps the protagonists who were pushing for the Leave vote also perhaps thought that Remain might edge it. Because over the last two years it seems to me that there's been a desperate sort of dash to try and formulate policy on the run as to how this Brexit thing will actually work, how you separate uh, Britain from the European Union. So for me, in the terms of the policy point that it makes, uh, is A, be careful what you wish for, and B, plan for what you wish for. Who, who wants to chip in with some thoughts here? Nikki? Yeah, I thought it was really interesting to hear, as you mentioned, a podcast of people speculating on Brexit before it happened and also speculating on the potential of a Donald Trump presidency. And it really provides a different perspective now that we're on the other side of both of those events having having occurred and we can see the rise of populism that led to both of them. And the fact that for many people in the United Kingdom and in the United States, building a wall was considered you know, a top policy priority. And you know, I wonder what those experts would, would think about, would say about the topic now that it, you know, their, their kind of uh, dark um, prediction of what might happen has in many ways come to light with this, this rise of populism and this you know, insecurity about the rest of the world and about um, especially migrants coming into the country. So, and, and I think, unfortunately, the issue of, of migrants is going to be something that the world faces more and more, especially as we start seeing the rise of climate refugees. And I, I, I worry about what um, that will mean for the same populist forces that led to Brexit and that led to Donald Trump. So I think on, on all those issues, it was a really interesting podcast. Yeah, I agree with Nikki and, and, and Jim Martin that it was such an interesting podcast. And to me, it raised issues about the fundamental nature of democracy um, because there's often an assumption in democratic systems that we have a vote and we decide something and that's the best way for people to engage. And to me, you know, I wonder with the outcome of Brexit, how much of that was people who were really sick of elite politics and sick of some of the debates and registered a, a protest vote. Um, and we got an outcome that perhaps no one expected and has created all kinds of issues. So voting is necessarily part of the democratic system. But if societies are to be truly democratic and to think deeply about these. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN really serious challenges that the world's facing, then there needs to be a much deeper conversation where people can engage and air their views and discuss those things in a, those issues in a consensual and constructive way, rather than simply saying, let's resolve it with a vote. And then we live with an outcome that may or may not be useful and is a fairly crude way of dealing with very complex issues. 
Sue, my fellow former Brit, what did you make of it? Yeah, I, I mean, I, at the time, um, was coming at this from a slightly different angle. I, I'm not saying that I thought it was going to go the way it did. Um, and I think some of this came across in the podcast. You know, I come, I originally came from the northeast of England, from one of the most kind of de- deprived areas of the UK, which, of course, uh, was uh, an area which had one of the highest uh, votes to leave. Uh, the European Union. Um, so I kind of, you know, I have a lot of kind of uh, contact with people still there and I knew they were going to vote to leave. And they had good reasons to want to leave. Um, and I feel in a way that that's, you know, been lost a bit. And, it, you know, as you say, Nikki, it'd be really uh, interesting to get that group back together and to have a conversation about, you know, not not about what's dominating the debate at the moment, which is how do we Brexit? How are we going to actually, you know, we're still trying to work out how it's going to work, but go back to, you know, why the vote went the way it did and what were the real root causes that, you know, led to such a high proportion of the British population wanting to leave the European Union and addressing some of those. I suspect that's a question that will occupy some academic research for many, many years to come. So I'd like to move on. The next podcast that we want to have a look at is, uh, again, Bob's nomination. And it's quite a recent one. It's diving into the Indo-Pacific debate. Uh, It featured Rory Medcalf, Dave Brewster and Denise Fisher. And, you know, essentially asked the question, is it time to say farewell to the Asia-Pacific as a categorisation term? And in the pod, we sort of dive into the where's, why's and what ifs of the Indo. Pacific, which is a term that sort of swept through foreign policy circles throughout the region. Let's have a listen what Denise and David had to say. And when you look at Australia's definition, uh, particularly in the most recent defence white paper, 2017, um, the idea of what we think should uh, the Indo-Pacific should encompass is actually quite blurry. Uh, the best I can make out is that it's India plus most of the Asia-Pacific. Uh, in our white paper, we talk about China, obviously we talk about Japan, the US, Indonesia, ROK, at one point even Vietnam. Mm. So it doesn't seem to me that we're clear uh, in this. And when you look at our strategy for furthering it, the situation becomes even less clear because we talk about engaging democ- major democracies in bilateral and small groups. Uh, so where does that leave for example, China. Uh, so I think there are some questions about this, and I really don't think it's good enough that we just accept a, a fluid definition of all of this. I mean, I would fundamentally disagree with those com- with Denise's comments. I think it is an evolving concept, and because it's based on some functional changes, to try and draw bright bright boundaries in geographic terms around it is not terribly helpful, particularly because Australia is going to have very different ideas about its geographic extent compared with, say, Japan or compared with India. And that's natural and normal. And to try and corral everyone into some sort of strict geographic definition, I don't think is terribly helpful because it's a, at the base, it's a functional concept. So Uh, naturally countries are going to see it in somewhat different terms, including China. What's in their name, Bob? Well, there you go, Martin. And just hearing those two, and both are colleagues of mine, as a former diplomat in the Asia-Pacific region particularly, part of me feels a sympathy with Denise because as the former diplomat, I can see she wants to get down to something practical, get to work, get to negotiating something. Equ with David, he's 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 a strategic thinker and he's trying to get the sense of that and how we fit into that and this is an evolving strategic sort of world we're in and what's going to work best for Australia. I personally don't think the two are irreconcilable. As I said, I'm a former Asia-Pacific diplomat for about 40 years. In those days, it was Asia and the Pacific quite separately. Then we got up to Asia-Pacific. We had the big institutions like the East Asia Summit and APEC, which Australia was very actively involved. But I also served in South Asia in my time, in Sri Lanka in particular, and had a good sense of where, where our interests were in the Indian Ocean. Rory Medcalf, of course, is the prime mover of this concept and all power to him. I think it's an idea whose time has come. The question for me, is it a useful thinking concept about where Australia sits in the world today? I absolutely think it is. Rory mentions maps matter, and he does. And he does show a map from time to time of the world's kind of turned upside down. And you sort of sit there looking at the world from China's point of view. It's kind of fascinating. Because when you look at it that way, Japan, uh, China, Korea, whatever, 
they see that whole India-Pacific thing stretching ahead of them. China thinks of its landmass going west to Europe, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative of China. So I do think it's an idea whose time has come. Does it help our thinking? I think it does. Rory gives us some good ideas about how Australia should fit in here. It's naturally our region for the future. It's a much more complicated future. We're going to have to spend more resources across our assets in dealing with it. It's not anti-China. It's not pro-America. And we should be absolutely clear-minded and play a long game and put the resources into it. All of that I agree with. Uh, Rory described that discussion between um, David and Denise as spirited, which I think is suitably <laughs> diplomatic language for it. I would definitely encourage people to give it give it a listen. And this is also an opportunity to give a bit of a plug to the fact that on Policy Forum we now have a brand new section on Indo- the Indo-Pacific and specifically looking at Indo-Pacific issues, which is guest edited by Rory. So I'd recommend everyone to go and have a look at that. Now I want to move on to uh, another podcast from a very noted academic, Peter Singer, who is a world famous philosopher and ethicist. And in the podcast, this is your choice, Nikki, he chatted to you. He discusses political ethics, Trump's America and the obligations of nation states. Let's have a listen to what he had to say. Gaining power may be a self-interested thing to do. It may be something that you, some people seem to want power for its own sake. Some people want power for the other rewards that it brings, whether that's uh, fame or money or whatever it might be. But I don't think um, the desire for power in someone with political ideas is necessarily a self-interested thing to do. Uh, It might be that you're seeking power in order to achieve the things that you want to do on a larger scale. And uh, I don't see anything wrong with that. I think that uh, you, you can only, there are many things you can only do if you gain power. Powerful stuff, Nikki. Why did you choose this one? Well, first up, I just have to say that it was a, a massive privilege for me to get to interview Peter Singer. He's long been one of my, my intellectual heroes. Um, so it was, it was amazing to sit down and chat with him um, one-on-one about, about some of the big questions I, have, I had about the world. And I think that quote that you just played really um, was interesting because it, we often think of power as a bit of a, a dirty word. You know, we, we don't like to um, kind of be frank about the fact that a, a lot of us are trying to become more powerful and are pursuing power. And we, th- we see politicians who are pursuing power as motivated by self-interest. And that sits uneasily with the idea of morals and the idea that politicians are public policymakers who should have, um, you know, the interests of wider society and the, and the world at heart. So I think it, it was an interesting point that he made that politics is the art of what's possible and that it's not necessarily um, unethical to uh, pursue power. In fact, it can be a, a very ethical thing to do. Um, so that's that's what I took away from the discussion, among many other things. But should let, keep the discussion rolling. I think. So, so what did you make of it? Yeah, I mean, similarly, I was I was struck by this last point about um, power and and how we kind of tend to think of it as a you know in a sort of in negative terms. Um, you know, I think for those of us you know in the room who have worked directly with politicians, um, where you know. Incredibly hard to generalise, but in my experience, they are motivated by a range of things, um, and you know, self-interest is often way down there. It's you know, it's often about trying to uh, make the world a better place, and that's not something that you hear in the popular press about politicians. So yes, I mean, really struck by this kind of nuance around, you know, what power is and how we, you know, and how we need it uh, if we want to uh, progress. Um, in the world. Yeah, it was a fascinating discussion. So I want to move on to a choice that Sharon made. And quite frankly, if Sharon hadn't made this choice first, I probably would have chosen as well. Uh, It was Terry Waite and the podcast we did called Freedom and Forgiveness. Terry Waite, for those of you who don't know him, is the co-founder of Hostage UK. In 1987, while he was working as a hostage negotiator for the Archbishop of Canterbury, he travelled to Lebanon to negotiate the release of hostages there. But while he was in Beirut, he was captured himself and he spent almost five years in captivity, uh, four of which were in solitary confinement and in this really quite moving podcast he talks about his experience and how being held captive has 
sort of freed him to see the world in a new way. Let's have a listen to what he had to say. I'd just be very keen to hear your thoughts on the role of, of empathy about how we think about others. You've had an experience where I think most would think it must be very difficult to have empathy for those who held you captive, but you obviously have done a lot of thinking around these issues. One of the things that I think captivity did for me was this, that prior to captivity, I had always a sympathy for those who found themselves on the margins of life. And sympathy is to feel sorry for. I think captivity changed it for me so that sympathy was converted into empathy. And empathy means not just to feel sorry for, but to know actually how someone feels who is kicked around, who has no status in life, who is deprived. I've been through that. I know what it is to be at the bottom of the heap. I know what it is to be deprived. I know what it is to be kicked around. I know what it is never to know whether you're going to see the end of the day or not. Now, there are thousands of people like that in the world who are not necessarily imprisoned, but are living in some of the townships and slums of our world who live in that situation. And I'm grateful for captivity for that, for enabling me to say, well, I know I understand how you feel, not just have so- not just sorry for you. And if you understand how somebody feels, at least you're beginning to get on the wavelength whereby together you can see how best to deal with things. Incredible interview, Sharon. It was an amazing interview, Martin. And for so many of the interviews that we've done, I felt privileged to be able to hear from those incredible people, but none more so than Terry Wade. I think as human beings, we would probably all hope that we would be able to turn a devastating experience into something positive. I'm not sure any of us really have the capacity to do that in the way that Terry Waite has done it. I think that quote or that clip from him speaks for itself in terms of the the power of that interview. But I think that that message of his about understanding the world from someone else's perspective is so important. And there are a few times that you walk away from a conversation with someone and really think, I feel like I want to reassess the way I view the world and to reassess the way in which I make judgments about others. And that's how I felt when I walked away from that discussion with Terry Waite. And I hope others feel that when they listen to the podcast. It was genuinely powerful stuff. It really was very powerful stuff. And I, I felt exactly the same way coming out of that. I really felt like a, a, a window to, to the world had been, had, had been open to me. Now I want to move on to an entirely different subject. I want to talk about science and the challenges that science has in terms of interaction with policy. And way back we had uh, Sir John Beddington on the pod. On the podcast was called A Marriage of Inconvenience, where science meets policy. Uh, Sir John Beddington was the United Kingdom's chief scientific advisor. And in that role, he dealt with a number of emergencies, including the swine flu epidemic, the volcanic ash incident that closed uh, Eastern Atlantic airspace, and the Fukushima nuclear incident. And Professor Beddington discussed with us the state of science in public policy around the world and what scientists can do to get policymakers listening to the evidence. There's a real tension to do with time scales. Climate change is obviously the one that everybody thinks at, but there's a time delay in, in the world's climate so that the weather we're currently experiencing is driven by the greenhouse gases that were in the upper atmosphere in about 1995. So there's give or take about a 20-year time delay. So if you're, as I was, chief scientific advisor, going to prime minister or cabinet and saying, we really must cut greenhouse gas emissions dramatically, the question comes back is, well, when will we see the benefits? And the answer is in 20 years' time, which, given a five-year political cycle, is not going to be going down too well really hits on uh, the core of a fundamental challenge. Sue, this was your nomination. Tell us about why you like this one. Yes, I mean, I I think a lot about how we um, get science and evidence into policy. And, you know, it's a focus of my own research. Um, And I was just struck both by how, uh, you know, his humility in terms of saying what science can do for policymaking. So he was very clear about how uh, science and evidence is, 
you know, is important to policy, but that actually lots of other things matter too, that values matter, that democratic debate matters. Um, you know, and I think his point about the, uh, the importance of scientists not claiming certainty uh, was, you know, w- was really valuable. Um, and then his other point about timescales, I mean, I've always thought about the, 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 the break in the timescales between how long it takes to do research uh, and how that fits with political decision making. But the point that he was really making was that, uh, you know, a lot of research and scientific, scientific evidence tells us about impacts in 10, 15, 20, 25 years time. You know, how do we factor that into political cycles? You know, and how do we how do we use science for informing the long term. I just thought it was, you know, he raised some really fantastic challenges. Political cycles really don't work in those kind of time frames, do they? So it was a very interesting discussion indeed. Uh, good choice, I think. I enjoyed talking to uh, Sir John Bellington. I want to stay with science for pod number 10. We've reached the end of our, of, our, of our list. And this one is Nikki's choice. It was the podcast we did quite recently on Australia's place in the new space race. There's plenty of alliteration in that title there. And it was with uh, Anna Moore and Brad Tucker from here at the Australian National University. And they took a look at Australia's recent decision to establish a national space agency and how that might help launch a multi-billion dollar industry. Let's have a listen to what they had to say. Just as we would never ask another country to do our roads, to teach our students, to maintain our hospitals, why are we relying on other people to do this stuff in space? It's this classic out-of-sight, out-of-mind problem. So what does it do for me? Well, it's actually doing a lot in the background. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the reality is if, if, if we just turned off everything that was related to space now, we wouldn't be able to live our lives at all. So we're well past the point of where you can just take space and put it in a category and go, oh, we're not going to fund it anymore. It's so it's integral to absolutely everything we do. So we're well past that point. Nikki, talk us through the final frontier. (laughs) (laughs) I knew a space pun was coming up. Uh, I guess I was really inspired by this pod for two reasons. One is that space is just such an exciting area of policy and one that I'm I'm really interested in. And I I personally believe is something that... um, is, is going to be really important for um, the security of, of, of life here on Earth is our ability to not put all our eggs in one basket. basket. And, you know, who knows? Maybe, we, maybe we'll be looking to establish colonies on, on other planets this century. I think that's, that's actually possible. Um, the other thing I wanted to say about why I like that pod was they really made a strong defence about, I guess, the common criticism that spending money on space is wasteful. And we should really just be spending it on health and education and we're just throwing money down the drain on, you know, science projects. And they, as, as you heard in that clip, they, they demonstrate how important it is to maintain a space agency for everyday functioning, that without the technologies that underpin space programs, we probably wouldn't have Wi-Fi. We probably wouldn't have, um, you know, navigation that allows farmers to tend their crops and um, allows us to buy milk at $2 instead of $20. So... I, I think that for both those reasons, it was a it was a very strong podcast for me. Where do you stand in space, Sharon? Uh, well, currently on Earth, but you never know in the future where I might be, be able to stand. But I think, like Nikki, I thought that was a, such a powerful um, conversation in terms of making the linkages between what we often see as different silos within public policy, um, and making the case that you know the, the the space races, it's often called, but really it's deep research. Around around space, what that contributes to um, all other elements of our lives. The other thing that struck me as part of that conversation was that as we um, establish an, an agency in Australia and we think about these these issues, it seems to me it's about science, but it's about a whole range of other issues too that we need to bring into the mix. And that's around the ethics of moving into space, around some of the what we would think of as environmental considerations. Um, I think, Nikki, you made that really important point that perhaps life on Earth might be limited in terms of you know how long we can live on this planet, 
but what are the implications as we move beyond for the mess that we've made here? And how do we address some of those ethical issues if we genuinely are thinking about ourselves in an intergalactic way? So we often talk about those things in a light way, but I think the ethics of this are also really important. So I hope those are the kinds of conversations that we have as we move forward. And I think that's something that Australia could contribute to globally as well in terms of the debates. There's also a universe of legal issues around this as well. There's plenty of talk about asteroid mining and who on earth would would own it and at what point they own it and how you go about claiming ownership over an asteroid. So it was a very interesting podcast covering a lot of ground. Good choice, Nikki. Thanks for that. So we've come to the end of that section of the podcast. I hope you've enjoyed the choices that we've made. I've got to say we found it very, very difficult to narrow it down to 10. Uh, Stay with us because in part two, we're going to be looking at some of the parts when it didn't go quite so well. Be back shortly. Welcome back to Policy Forum Pod. Uh, so I hope you've enjoyed listening to the 10 podcasts that we chose. We were really, really keen to hear what your thoughts were. What was your favourite podcast that we put out or your favourite moment from a podcast that we've we've put out? Do get in contact with us. You can reach out to us on email, podcast at policyforum.net, via uh, Twitter, where we are, Apps Policy Forum, or you can find us on Facebook, where we are, Asia Pacific Policy Society. Now, what you hear each week with the podcast is, we hope, a fairly kind of polished product, a fairly polished product with some good, clean interviews, nicely, nicely put together with absolutely no mistakes. But uh, the reality is somewhat different. So as it's a as it's our 50th, I thought we would take the opportunity to listen to some of those times when perhaps things didn't go quite so well. So first of all, uh, Sharon, I think you have something that you would like to say in regards to my pronunciation. Oh, I I picked this as one of my um, favourite interviews, and indeed it was. But it's also an interview that stays in my mind because of the way in which you messed up that (laughs) poor man's name every time you tried to say it. And uh, the the, the listeners didn't hear this, but the more Martin tried to get it right, the more it sounded like he was swearing. (laughs) (laughs) It was very difficult to keep a straight face around some fairly serious issues when we had this, um, this little issue going on in the background that was causing, yeah, a bit of mirth in the studio. Let's have a listen to where things started to go terribly wrong for me. Can I just get you to introduce yourself as you would like to be introduced on the podcast? Babatunde Ojatimei, Executive Director, United Nations Population Fund, New York. Wonderful. So let me just check that pronunciation. Ojatimei? Ojatimei. 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 I'll do my best with it. Okay. I did do my best. <laughs> and it got worse as it went on. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out, in that case, my best was actually not good enough. I think Martin's best actually involved three different incarnations of <laughs> that pronunciation over the course of the podcast. It was a bit of a running theme through the podcast. I, uh, in fact, I listened back to the podcast that we did quite recently on Timor Leste, and I believe I pronounced that in an, a variety of different ways throughout the podcast, which everyone was very polite and didn't pick me up on. So uh, this is a, a common theme throughout the throughout the pod. I think you should think of it as your inclusive approach to language, Martin. You know, there's <laughs> something for everyone in the way you pronounce things. Um, and it's probably true of me too. <laughs> I have to say we have... Uh, I'll get the apology in now. We have mangled some of our listeners' names as well. We try very hard to get the pronunciation right, uh, but we've certainly made some mistakes along that front. And talking of mistakes, Nikki, um, we learned something very valuable about something that you should probably never do in a podcast, right? Because we're often talking about policy issues and politics, a lot of a lot of what we discuss is making predictions about what's going to happen in the future and. Um, there's been a few times on the podcast where we've made some predictions that have uh, very quickly been dispelled. Um, so, can, can you give us an example of what it is that we're talking about here? So on one of our recent podcasts, we looked at football and Russia. And 
being the World Cup, there were obviously some strong opinions about who was going to do well and who wasn't. And uh, Maya Bandari, who isn't here today but is often a host on the podcast, made the, the very confident claim that Russia was going to just completely bomb out maybe about 12 hours before they beat Saudi Arabia 5-0. <laughs> and then uh, also on that podcast, we had um, prediction from Martin that Germany was going to probably be the team to win the cup. And just last night, we, <laughs> we've heard that Germany is, hasn't even made it to the round of 16. So that's a, a bit of a, a lesson for all of us about the, the perils of confidently making predictions about the future. I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say I predicted that France would win the World Cup and where we stand, France is still in. <laughs> yeah, it, it, look, it wasn't one of my better predictions and I think Maya would probably say the same thing. But I want to stay with that podcast because one of the things I really liked about that podcast was that in the introduction that Maya recorded, she worked so hard to get as many football-related puns in that introduction as she possibly, possibly could. And I do have a little clip I want to play just to illustrate the point, to see how many football terms you can count in this. That's right. Today we'll be diving into the heart of the Russian motherland to talk to you about Russia and the World Cup. Do the Russians have home advantage now that they're hosting the World Cup? Are they playing an offensive strategy in the game of power politics? Will FIFA sponsorships kick off their energy expansion plans? Will Russia score more energy export goals? Or is the country offside in multilateral institutions? And just how messy is Russia's bureaucracy? That final one around Lionel Messi is my all-time favourite pun. I've got to commend Maya for the work she does with that. And that's only a small excerpt from it. She goes on for about another minute, continuing to make football puns. It was a bit of a cracker, wasn't it, Nicky? I was reminded of one of those um, Simpsons memes of everyone just standing around looking at can't even remember. Maybe a kid being bullied. And just when? When is it going to end? When's, when? When? When can we be spared from the from the, the puns that are just yeah the the pun pain. They were fl- flying thick and fast. So well done to Maya. That was that was one of my one of my favourites. As promised, this podcast will end on a bit of a surprise. I've got a clip to play, which is one of my all time favourite moments from working on Policy Forum Pod from all 50 podcasts that we've produced. But before I play that though, I want to say a huge thank you to everyone involved with the podcast. I want to say thanks to all of you, uh, my fellow presenters for the time that you've given up uh, on working on this. And I want to say a, a huge thank you to all of the guests who have given up their time yeah. free of charge uh, to come on and talk and talk through uh, topical issues, their research expertise, often at very short notice. Uh, we've made them trudge all the way down to old Canberra House on the, apt- on the outskirts of uh, the ANU campus here. We've made them sit in this tiny, insanely hot, converted cupboard that we call a studio. And their passion and their expertise has absolutely blown me away. It's been uh, a, a wonderful experience and I'm unbelievably grateful to everyone. Martin, could I just add to that? It has been an enormous privilege um, to talk to some of the people that we've been able to talk to. But I really want to thank you for the incredible hard work that you've put into this and congratulate you for your vision. And I think if there's one thing a public policy school should be doing, it's it's getting information, evidence, debate out there in the public arena. And it's your vision that's achieved this. And so congratulations and thank you. And what the the listeners probably don't know is there have been moments 24 hours out from when the podcast is due to go up when Martin's been saying, we need to find someone, we need to do something, (laughs) we need a podcast. And inevitably he comes up with a brilliant idea and it's another terrific podcast. So well done, Martin. It's been a pleasure and can't wait to see where we go. Sharon, that is so nice of you to say. Thank you so much. But I I feel I really need to recognise the fact that um, putting the podcast together is a real team effort. I work with a number of people, Nikki being one one amongst those, Maya being another, Cherry, uh, all of whom 
put in significant hours in making sure that this podcast happens every every week. And uh, I'm unbelievably grateful for their input, their ideas, their enthusiasm and their hard work, even when, as you say, you know, t- 24 hours before we're supposed to release a podcast, I'm going, we haven't got anything recorded. We need to find something. And they always manage to do the, do the goods. It's, it's, it's an incredible experience. Um, so after your... Uh, kind words. I feel a bit mean with, <laughs> with what's to come, Sharon. I've got to say this. <laughs> now I'm worried. <laughs> you were a right of reply there. <laughs> so I'm going to play a clip in a second. Before I do that, I'll just say remember to stay tuned for our you know, tweaked and new incarnation of Policy Forum Pod in the weeks ahead. Uh, we'll also be back next Friday for episode 51. So here is the clip that I was talking about. It's Sharon Bessel everyone, on the joys of introducing Professor Sally Engel Mary. It's a tough name, isn't it, Sharon? It's a surprisingly difficult name. <laughs> I should say she's one of my, she's also one of my intellectual heroes. I've, I've read a lot of her work. I've talked a lot with Sally. So yeah, I should know how to say her name. So let's have a listen to that clip. Enjoy and we'll see you next week. But to help us try to untangle some of this today is Sally Engelmeri. Sangle. <laughs> I'm glad it wasn't just me. <laughs> uh, yeah. Shall I start from the beginning of the sentence? Eddie, it does come out of Sangle, doesn't it? Sangle, yes. That's right, Martin. There are some real challenges in trying to to measure and to understand these really complex issues. But helping us to try to untangle some of this today is Sally Engel-Mary. Sangal is... (laughs) (laughs) It's so embedded in my head now. Oh, that's I mean, if I say she is, she is. She is. <laughs> that's right, Martin. There are some real complexities around trying to to understand and to measure these really difficult issues. But helping us try to untangle some of this today is Sally Engel Mary. Sally is Silver Professor of. I thought there was a snort in some of my laughter. I was really worried that that was going to be mine. <laughs> when you get to that point of laughing. Can you do the line now for us? Untangling the... Uh... <laughs> it was the untangling yeah. that was the, the problem. That's, that's what, that's that's what right. led to me being untangled. Helping us untangle some of these issues is Sally Engel Mary. <laughs> Sally. She tells us. <laughs> Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.